This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders. Here are your hosts, Jason Floyd of the MMA Report and the president of Combat Sports Media, Sam Kaplan. CM Punk made his professional mixed martial arts debut this past weekend. Joe Warren has made some interesting comments about sponsorship pay for fighters in Bellator in 2016. And we are going to be joined by Lucas Middlebrook of the Professional Fighters Association here on this edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast. Sam, how's it going, man? How was your weekend? Jason, let's forget about the weekend. Question right off the bat. Has there ever been a worse performance in the octagon and a worse fighter than CM Punk? James Tony? I don't know. It's close. I, I tell you what, I, 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 uh, I thought CM did a little better than I thought. I thought he did a, minute, a little Jason, worse. Jason, Jason, wait a minute. What did you do? One offensive maneuver that he executed in that fight. Um, he came forward. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I think it's, you know, if this was all about just a payday, he could have quit a lot quicker than that fight ended. Um, you know, obviously it wasn't, uh, you know, it, it, you know, to me, the most, the thing that baffles me about that whole situation is UFC fighters complaining about what he made, the disclosed pay of what he no. made. And I sit there and go, seriously, are you really surprised? Like, I don't get this outrage. And I, I saw a tweet on uh, on Wednesday, on Tuesday, the night we're recording this, of someone saying is, you know, basically sending a message to UFC fighters saying, if you got a real problem with this, how about you become a real draw? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very good point. And I think a lot of it is naivete because what did people think, fighters and fans that are outraged by this? Did they think that CM Punk was going to come in and fight for ten and ten? I know. I mean, hey, I mean, hey, God bless Mickey Gall. I mean, he got fifteen and fifteen. I mean, good, good for him to get a, a little bit of coin there. But I mean, let's be honest about it. the biggest, the biggest winners uh, of that pay per view is Stipe Miocic and Alistair Overeem. I mean, they got an early Christmas present uh, for being on a CM Punk card because I'm sure that, that both of them had pay-per-view draws in there. Um, I actually saw uh, the place. I was at a, a sports bar on Saturday night uh, watching in Atlanta, which, by the way, no one uh, – there was only about a couple of tables in, in the venue that, that really seemed to care uh, that the pay-per-view was on. But it, it, it was definitely clear when that CM Punk fight came on that people were in. It was, it was a little disappointing that uh, I, I did not hear CM Punk's entrance. I was kind of interested. I, I saw a video after the fact. Uh, a very smart decision by the UFC to have him come out to, to cult the personality. But, it, Sam, I'll say this. I don't think we've seen the last of CM Punk. While his next fight may not be in the UFC, you know if the UFC cuts him tomorrow, you know who the first phone call is to. <laughs> Scott Coker. And, and I would not blame Bellator for signing him at all. I wouldn't blame them. But I think at this point, if you're getting involved in the CM Punk MMA business, the returns are going to be diminishing at this point. The buy rate, all indications are that the buy rate for UFC 203 will be very strong. How strong, we don't know. There's a lot of speculation out there. But let's just say it's going to do well. 
Oh, no, no question. And, and look, it's because of CM Punk. I mean, there's, you know, and I, and I think the UFC did a great job of, of promoting CM Punk all week. And, and CM uh, Punk, for his part, I thought he did an incredible job, you know, being out front in the cameras, the way he presented himself. He could have gone the easy route and done the pro wrestling, mo- you know, moves and cut promos and, you know, been to- total pro wrestling mode. But he dialed it down. He was able to be a legitimate fighter, present himself as a legitimate fighter. And not go over the top, yet still be engaging, still be interesting, and still carry the spotlight like that. And that 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 in itself was a skill. And I think that out of the whole weekend probably was CM Punk's best performance. That's the best attribute I think to date that we've seen from CM Punk as an MMA fighter. He went a little overboard with not doing the handshake, but I'm not going to give him too much uh, guff for that. I, I think the reason why he did that—that's just you know a, an old school move to try to get more people to rerun the weigh-in, give him a highlight. I think that he could have accomplished that in a little bit of a different way. Maybe do the handshake, hold on to it a little too long. Maybe, you know, get in uh, Mickey Gall's face, you know, maybe drop a couple F-bombs. You know, I think that was more showmanship than, than anything else. I just think he went the wrong route. I think that the comment that he had about Mickey Gall in one of his pre-fight featurettes where he basically said that Mickey Gall – has only fought tomato cans, you know, who who does this guy think he is? I think, you know, again, he was trying to bring heat, trying to get people to talk about the fight, trying to sell it. I think it was a misstep, though, because, you know, one of the biggest things when you're promoting a fight, you don't want to belittle your opponent too much because when you beat him, if you beat him, you've already degraded your own victory. So by calling, you know, Mickey Gall a tomato can, and then had he been able to beat Mickey Gall, he would have discredited his own win. So, you know, definitely a couple of missteps there. But for the most part, I thought he handled himself very well. But like I said, Jason, kind of bring this full circle. His next fight, if it does 50% of the box office that this first fight did, I would be shocked. I think that the novelty has already worn off. You can't have a performance that's that one-sided against you and still expect people in droves to invest in your, your fight. Yeah, obviously, the, you know, the, the novelty of him. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, after the weigh-in and even Saturday before this fight was happening, one of the things that kind of, you know, I knew that obviously Mickey Gall was the more talented guy. But, you know, one of the things I was wondering was, was, you know, that scene going to get the best of Mickey Gall? You know, obviously, you know, CM Punk has, you know, made, has been on the big stage like that before. And that was one of the things that I thought about the weigh-ins. But, you know, once both of those guys were in the cage on Saturday night, I thought you saw the nerves with CM Punk. And, you know, look, I'll give the guy, you know, look, any guy that, that makes that walk, I give them all the credit in the world, all the respect in the world. I don't know about necessarily what that game plan was to charge right at at Mickey Gall. I, I, I can tell you what that was. I mean, that is a rookie mistake. That's something I did in my first smoker. That's something a lot of people do the first time they're in a, a, a fight, whether it be a smoker, amateur fight, or you know maybe they're turning pro after having not fought amateur. But you do that your first time sometimes because – or certain people do it. I, I know I did it. You, you're just full of so much adrenaline. You feel like you're shot out of a cannon, and you think that you're going to beat the crap out of somebody. I mean, you, 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 I mean, before you lose in a fight, you believe you're invincible, especially when you go through a full camp. You have a tendency to believe that you're better than, when, that, better than what you really are. A lot of fighters go through that. I've talked to them about it. It's something I went through. 
And then you have that first loss, and then suddenly you realize, you see fighting for what it is, and you realize, you know, there are bad things that can happen to you. And certain, certain guys don't come back from losses because after feeling like they were invincible, when they get ready for their next fight, all they think about, instead of thinking about all the good things that could happen in a fight, they think about all the negative outcomes, and they become, become completely turned off to fighting after just one fight. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what CM Punk, that was, I, I was surprised that we saw that reaction, that he, he couldn't control his adrenaline, that he just went out like that, because that's something you see from guys in their first smoker. And supposedly, from what we had heard, CM Punk had done 12, 13, 14 smokers while uh, training at uh, Duke Rufus's. The, the thing, though, that I would question, though, is when you look at some of the footage that I saw of him training at Duke Rufus with the documentary, it didn't look like a real smoker to me. In a real smoker... When you tap out, the fight, it's over. It's like a real fight. You're trying to simulate the same circumstances that if you get knocked out, you get tapped, or you get in trouble, the fight's over just like a real fight. So you feel that sense of urgency. You feel that sense of danger. When you're restarting a fight like that and allowing a guy to get a second chance, I think it sends sublim- sublim- uh, subconsciously you uh, – you don't feel that urgency. I, I think that it, re, it reinforces bad psychological habits to do that. So I don't know why they were doing it that way. I definitely think when you have smokers that you restart, it, it's, uh, you're doing your fighter a disservice. Yeah, you know, and, and I thought that the documentary they did on, on CM Punk, which, I mean, they taped it for, you know, what, a year and a half, uh, you know, combine it, you know, put, you know, put it into four episodes. I actually uh, binge watched it all last week. I had, I had seen the first episode when it initially came out, but then last week ended up watching episodes two through four. I, I thought they they did a tremendous job on that, and obviously that's not a cheap production the UFC put no, on there. I mean no. that's that's spending a lot of money. That's not like you know, hey, we're we're filming a countdown show. I mean the, the UFC spent a lot of money uh, in, in putting on that show. By the way, I absolutely love Mickey Gall calling out uh, Sage Northcutt. That was a smart call out. It's funny because Mickey Gall. Regardless of whether he beats Sage Northcutt, because I think that fight's going to happen. It hasn't been announced, but I think it makes all the sense in the world. He wants it. Northcutt wants it. It just makes too much sense. I don't think he has a chance in hell at beating Sage Northcutt. But the pre-fight hype going into that, Mickey Gall's name will continue to circulate, continue to get out there. And if he makes a decent showing of himself, he's going to be one of the more well-known and more recognizable fighters in the UFC. And he's going to put the UFC in an interesting position because Mickey Gall, in my eyes, he has potential, but he's still five to six fights away from being ready for the UFC, at least five to six fights away. And yeah. that, would, that equates to about two, two and a half years. So he's way too early to the party here. And there's going to be a, a, a feeling on the UFC's part, especially from their matchmakers, to, to let Mickey Gall go, to release him after his first loss because he's so far from being ready. And it's so, so much of a... Uh, investment in his development. It's going to take so much time. There's going to be probably an urge to let him go so he can go back to the regional scene where he really belongs and develop there. But but here's the thing. If he loses to say Northcutt, he's going to have so so much name recognizability that if the UFC does let him go, he's going to be making some pretty good money outside of the UFC. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you've mentioned this on, on this podcast. I think, the, and I totally agree with what you said. I think the smart thing for you, the UFC, have them fight on these, uh, you know, these regional shows that are on UFC Fight Pass. So it still allows you to to have your fans to see what Mickey Gall is doing, and, and kind of, and it could potentially, you know, help build him in kind of into a potential star down the road. Outside of Jesmond Duke, I don't, I haven't seen where the UFC has utilized their fight pass property properties as a true minor league. And I, it surprises me that they haven't done so, but you know, Mickey Gall is a perfect reason why you should start because if they find themselves in a position where they've got to let Mickey Gall go, they're going to let go of a very famous fighter. When it's all said and done after fighting CM Punk, after fighting Sage Northcutt, Mickey Gall is going to be a very famous fighter and famous fighters outside of the UFC. They can draw pretty good paydays. Yeah, especially if he can be a, a, a ticket seller up there uh, in, the, in New York, New Jersey area. I mean, I think that, you know, maybe it's a ring of combat who, as you know, hasn't is not currently on, on UFC Fight Pass. There's been a lot of rumblings that they uh, could potentially be on UFC Fight Pass in the future. I believe they're on CBS uh, Sports Network. Uh, yeah, but it's not. It's tape delayed. It's not live. Right. right. I mean, which is kind of like I don't understand. I don't understand why why promotions want to get on CBS Sports Network <laughs> when it's on tape delay. I, I just and it's I, not Nielsen rated. <laughs> yeah, it's not Nielsen rated. So I, I'm sitting there going, "What are you doing?" Just like, put it on YouTube. Just put it on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, it just it, it just absolutely makes no sense. I mean, here's the other part of it is, you know, necessarily for a lot of promotions. They don't care whether their fights are, are uh, you know, streamed or, or on television. They're more concerned with putting butts in the seats. That's all I cared about when I did Matrix fights with my partners, Jimmy Benz and the Miglarese brothers. You know, we had all kinds of people saying, oh, we want to stream your show. You got to stream your show. Is your show being streamed? And the number one question we, we would ask is, how much are you going to pay us? And they would say, pay us? You, uh, <laughs> pay you? You're going to pay us? We would laugh. God, yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I, I didn't care. Uh, I didn't yeah. care. I just wanted to put on a good show and, and put on good fights and, and put a lot of people in. And to me, the, the not having our fights streamed and not having them televised added to the allure of the show. The only way you were going to see our fights is if you were there, if you bought a ticket. You couldn't stay home and watch on your phone or watch on your computer. One other thing I want to touch on, Jason, because you mentioned the reality show, and you also talked about you know the most bewildering thing of the whole CM Punk fight and the buildup. The most build- bewildering thing to me, because I'm a huge CM Punk fan as a re- uh, from you know his pro wrestling days, and that, that documentary made me even more of a fan. I wanted to see him win. I, I really was hoping that... We were all going to be shocked, and he would shock the world, and the outcome that we anticipated, that we wouldn't see that, and that CM Punk, the, the, uh, you know, something that we had not anticipated or expected would, would, would come out of that. But you're here, you know, you're seeing the buildup, you're seeing how well it was done, how well he handled himself outside of the cage, and now you're hearing about some of the preliminary box office results. You obviously blew it. They should never have put him in with a fighter the caliber of Mickey Gall. If you're going to put CM Punk in your cage, if you're going to go that route, Make sure he wins because they, you know, imagine if he, they put him in against somebody that, that, that he could beat. Imagine they made, put him in there with Mike Jackson and CM Punk somehow knocked him out. How much bigger could this second Ooh. fight have been? You know, that could have been a huge gravy train that the UFC could have ridden for a couple more fights and done, uh, you, know, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And they killed it. They, they absolutely killed the Golden Goose. I, I, that, that that matchmaking, and I don't think it was Sean Shelby or Joe Silva that did it, because from what I understand, from what I've heard, they wanted no part of the CM Punk matchmaking, and that it was actually Dana White that did the matchmaking. 
the UFC as an organization made a huge critical error from a business perspective, not putting CM Punk in a position where he could, he could succeed in their cage. They, they should have kept that going. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, another, uh, you know, two other kind of storylines for me uh, about UFC 203. I mean, you talk about iconic walkouts and, you know, Uriah Faber is one of them. You know, with California love, how many more times are we going to see it? I talked about my post-fight show. I wouldn't be surprised if potentially Uriah Faber's last fight happens in December in Sacramento for that Fox card. And the other thing to me is, how about the awkward post-fight interview with Joe Rogan and Alistair Overeem? Yeah, I mean, and credit to Joe Rogan for coming out and saying that he does not want to interview fighters that have been knocked out. I, I think that was, you know, very smart on his part. I think that the reason why Alistair Overeem got interviewed, because it was such a crazy, awesome fight in production. They all, when you have a fight like that, there's always the desire by the production team and the producers to get the full story and get both guys to respond. But they, that, you know, that's why production people shouldn't always make decisions like that because they don't understand the mentality of, of fighting and the fighter uh, necessarily from an endemic perspective. And, you know, they're not disposable heroes. These aren't action figures. If a guy gets knocked out, he, he, he got knocked out. He's hurt. He's a human being. You can't necessarily stick a microphone and a camera in his face. Yeah, it'll be interesting to, to kind of see if we do see changes. As someone who is on the production side of a play-by-play broadcast, yeah, you want to – you want you want to get uh, all sides of the story following it, but uh, you know overall a decent pay per view. I mean, I think that it kind of had its moments. By the way, Betch Gahea, uh reacting like she just won the UFC title, I thought was pretty comical. Uh, I don't you know, know, you know what I thought was comical. Edmund Tarvidian getting kicked. How oh, about that, man? How about that. I mean, we almost had Strike Force Nashville all over again. And the the, the funny thing is. You know, that, that's so wrong. But for Breezy over Doom, it did it so wrong. Yet you have so many people, especially I saw Mac Danzig's tweet. Uh, tweet. You have, like, a lot of fighters, a lot of, like, not just random fans, but you have people that are really, like, involved in the industry, and they're, they're okay with it. it because he, it's, cause it's Edmund yeah. Tarbidian that got kicked. That, that's how much people despise him. They're willing to look the other way and overlook what, Fabrizio Verdun did because it's because of who he kicked. I mean, let's let's be honest about it. you. Look at Travis Brown since he uh, went to oh. Glendale Boxing Club. I mean, he's you know he's not progressed. You know, and he, Travis Brown's in a. I mean, even if he wanted to make a change in his training, that's got to be an odd decision for him. You've got your girlfriend who who trains at that gym. What if all of a sudden? I mean, does he well, she needs a... she needs to leave too? Oh, you know, yeah, here, we, you we know, both and, said that. <laughs> and it's it's you know some of it's fan service. It's fans giving their hot take, just speculating. They're not really in the know, and they make observations without having the knowledge. Oh, Ronda Rousey lost. Edmund Tarvidian must be a bad coach. But it's not just fans that have spewed that 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 thought. It's fighters, people in the fight community that are in the know, they're the ones who, who, who would know. And a lot of them are saying that Edmund Tarvidian, yes, he's a bad coach. Yeah, especially if you buy the uh, pay-per-views on UFC.tv and you can listen to the corner audio. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, – we'll, we'll see what happens there. But, you know, Sam, another thing I, I wanted to bring up here before we bring in Lucas Middlebrook here on this week's edition of the MMA Insiders podcast – is a comment that Joe Warren gave me, and and I am I listen to a couple of MMA podcasts. I'm not going to sit here and act like 
I listen to 10 or, or 15 MMA podcasts. But one of the podcasts that I do listen to is Lineup MMA with uh, Joe Warren, Sean Wheelock, and Ben Askren. I really like listening to, to Ben and Joe kind of talk about what's going on uh, in the industry. And uh, two episodes ago, Joe Warren started talking about sponsor pay and was basically saying, hey, it's just not very good in MMA at this point. And I had the opportunity to talk to Joe Warren. My full interview with Joe is going to be on my podcast that's going to come out uh, on Wednesday of this week. And I asked him, and I'm going to let you hear where I asked him about what the current state of sponsorship pay is for a fighter currently in Bellator. Joe, uh, really appreciate time. I've had the opportunity to, to listen to a, a lot of the podcasts you're doing with Ben and, and Sean Wheelock. Re- really love what you're doing there. But I thought in your last episode, you, you talked about something that I, I've talked about in terms of you know fighters and, and sponsorships. Kind of describe to me how different of a, of a it is now as maybe opposed to a couple of years ago. Well, yeah, sponsorships a couple of years ago, uh, especially before the UFC signed uh, Reebok. You know, um, there there was a lot of companies out there that were jumping on board. We're we're paying the money to be on our shorts to use us as billboards for us to make some extra cash during that fight. You know, and now it's fell off. You know, I mean. Um, you know, I didn't. I, I have really um, maybe one or two sponsors for this fight that I actually even paid. You know, I usually, you know, get in a sometime ballpark between you know five and fifteen grand out of my pair of shorts, and this time it's more like a two grand or something. It's not even. It's not even a factor. So it, it's sad. You know, I mean, um, kind of sponsors turn and run on you, man. They're, they're fair weather fans. A lot of them. You know what I'm saying? And, um, you know, they've kind of figured out they're not getting any return on investments, uh, not being in that UFC cage. And the Bellator cage is open, though. And um, so it's just uh, it's changed a little bit since since um, in the last year and a half, I think. I think people's kind of fell off or dropped off a little bit more. Is it frustrating for you? Do, I mean, do, do you kind of sit there? Is there a part of you goes, man, why do these companies not want to be in the Joe Warren business? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's that's how it always feels with me after a loss. I, I don't do well losing, you know, so um, I always feel like, you know, I've had a lot of uh, sponsors turn and run when I lost, um, even though, I've you know, I've won three belts in that Bellator cage, and hopefully we get another one this year. Um, so it, it, it's kind of, it sucks, you know. I mean, um, I just, uh, it, it, this was the worst fight I've had for sponsors. So um, I don't know why, but... Um, you know, maybe because I lost my last fight, but I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure. And that was a portion of my interview with Joe Warren. As I mentioned, you'll be able to hear, hear that full interview on this week's edition of the MMA Report podcast. Uh, Sam, uh, and, and first off, I want to thank forever put it on Reddit. Uh, it got a lot of comments uh, on Reddit, and uh, very interesting things there from Joe Warren. As someone who's been in this industry for a long time, Sam, what's your thoughts of hearing what Joe had to say there? If you're Bellator, you don't want Joe Warren going public with that. You don't want Ben Henderson talking about some issues in, in attracting sponsors for his fights in Bellator because that has been a recruiting selling point that can save Bellator money. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can when you're talking to a free agent, a high-profile free agent, you can say, look, you're going to make a lot more money here because we're not going to limit you with the Reebok sponsorship. We're not going to force that on you. You're going to allowed to get you're going to be allowed to get all your own sponsors. The sky's the limit. And that allows you to use that as a selling mechanism, as a recruiting tool when you're 
going out to fight, going out and trying to sign big name fighters. And that can maybe put you in a position where you don't have to offer as much guaranteed money because that is, or at least was an attractive selling point. But now you have Joe Warren and Ben Henderson coming out and they make that kind of public, that public, uh, commentary that they were trying to get out there you know that, that bellator is trying to push that oh well you know we let our athletes you know get their own sponsors we don't force reebok on them they were, they were putting that out there as a public narrative and that myth and that's proven to be a myth that narrative is, is a myth and when you've got joe warren and ben henderson coming out and, and saying that and the next time you go into negotiations with a high profile fighter and you're negotiating with their management and you try to use that as a selling point, you're going to get shot right down at the negotiation table. You're going to lose credibility if you come out and you try to sell that because the agent and manager, if they have half a brain and they pay attention to this industry, they're going to say, hey, two of your most well-known fighters are are saying that that there aren't sponsorship dollars to be had here. So we really don't see that as a selling point. And what that is going to come back to, Bellator is just going to have to come back over the top with more guaranteed money. Instead of having sponsors offset some of that guaranteed money, Bellator has to make up for that gap and come over the top. And so if you're Bellator, you don't want that stuff. You don't want Joe Warren coming out saying this. You don't want Ben Henderson coming out saying that stuff because it's bad for business. But Ben Henderson and Joe Warren, they're, they're telling the truth. Yeah, I mean, as a reporter, I absolutely uh, love to, you know, look, and if Joe Warren doesn't say that on his own podcast, I never ask that question. But, you know, Joe Warren put it out there, so it's like, hey, I have to ask that question and see what, what his thoughts are on it. I mean, obviously it's not the narrative that Bellator wants out there, but it's something that, you know, it's it's refreshing to hear. I mean, and one of my biggest takeaways of what Joe said was the return on investment's not there. I mean, I had a sponsor who has sponsored Bellator fighters uh, in the past, basically said there is no return on investment. At the end of the day, and I've said this countless times, sponsors are not there to be charities. And I, I think for a long time, I'm not saying this was with every fighter, but I think a majority of fighters, they thought just slapping a logo on a pair of shorts was enough. And that's no longer the case. These these sponsors want much more to show, you know, for them to sit there and shell out. I mean, the other thing is, I don't understand why people think that if you paid a guy in the UFC cage $10,000, you think that all of a sudden that $10,000 is going to go to that fighter in the Bellator cage. And that's just not the fact because advertising people do not value the UFC and Bellator as equals. Well, I think the a big reason why we used to see a lot more money spent on fighters, and I've kind of touched on it on the show a little bit before, so I don't want to get too long-winded with it, but to use, for lack of a better term, there's a lot of jock sniffers out there in the world. There's people Mm -hmm. that want to rub shoulders with athletes and sponsoring a fighter was a glamor thing. It was a way to get close to a fighter. Potentially you could go to the show, you fly yourself out there, you try to network the fighter and the manager, leverage them to get really close up seats. And you're going there and you're partaking in the MMA lifestyle. The fighter is somewhat obligated. If he's smart, he's going to spend some time with you while you're out there and you're going to feel important. And you're going to, you know, if if you have a thing for athletes, you know, that's, that's a very relatively inexpensive way to get really close to one through sponsorship. But I think as we've seen, the MMA, the appeal of the MF, MMA lifestyle, it's not as cool as it once was. It wasn't the hip, tre- it's not the hip, trendy new thing that it once was. I think a lot of those marks, a lot of those jock sniffers have moved on to other things. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's one of the things I've talked about. When you go to MMA events, you don't see 
uh, you know, the typical MMA uh, apparel uh, out there anymore. It's it's one of those things. Uh, the past couple of UFC events that I've gone to that have uh, you know really uh, jumped out to me. But you know, Sam, we do have a, a ton of more to talk about here on this week's edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast. But uh, going to let you hear from Lucas Middlebrook, you know, man, one of the men behind the Professional Fighter Association. Of course, we had Rob Macy on last week, and and our listeners know we we are not the type of podcast that that does interviews, but since Rob wanted to come on the show last week, we wanted to offer the invitation to the Professional Fighters Association to get their side, let you hear from them. So you're going to hear from Lucas Middlebrook now, and then we'll get back. We'll talk about some other things going on in MMA. Joining us now here on the MMA Insiders Podcast is one of the men behind the Professional Fighters Association. Of course, we had Rob Macy from the MMA FA on last week, and we wanted to get the other side of the story, Lucas Middlebrook. Lucas, I really appreciate the time. You know, when we had Rob on last week, me and Rob kind of – Back and forth on a situation, and you're you were the name that came up, and you know he was kind of insinuating like, well, what has Lucas done for fighters? And I said, Nick Diaz, and you know, of course, he was trying to say, oh, that's a commission issue. I said, well, it's related to fighting. Um, does does it bother you when people are are looking at yourself and and your your partner Jeff Boris and maybe thinking that you guys um, maybe don't have the best of intentions? No, it doesn't really bother me to, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, my, my really, I, I'll be the first to admit my entry into MMA started with my representation of Nick. And, and I'll, I'll go a step further and say I wasn't even a giant fan of, of MMA until after I got involved in Nick's case. And, and now, uh, I've turned into to quite the fan. Uh, but it doesn't bother me in terms of experience because at least with respect to PFA, uh, I'm involved really from the labor law side of things. And that is my background. And that's what I've done in my entire law career has been labor law, both in and out of the sports realm. So in, in sports, I represent the National Basketball Referees Association, which is the NBA referees union. I represent the Major League Soccer Officials Union and then a number of unions outside of the airline industry and, and, and a lot of other industries as well. So it doesn't necessarily bother me. I mean, people are always going to question intentions from, from my perspective when, uh, when Jeff and, uh, and, and some of the in, other individuals that were involved asked me to get involved from the labor law perspective, I, I was happy to, to help out because when I was working on Nick's case, in that instance, at least from the drug testing side of things, I was really quite flabbergasted that there were no parameters wrapped around drug testing, wherein every other collective bargaining agreement, that's a, what they call mandatory subject of bargaining. So that was really my first glimpse into how there were no, there were no parameters around these individuals' uh, careers in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, collective bargaining or lack thereof. One of the things I've always talked about is perception is not always reality. What what are some of the perceptions that you have seen about the PFA that are not reality? Uh, the the perception that 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 uh, that uh, Jeff is, is in it, or I guess even myself is in it for a money grab, or that we're Johnny Come Latelys. Uh, that none of that is true. Uh, at least I speak for myself is. I really believe that that a union for these fighters would would really benefit them in terms of ironing out a lot of things that they don't have now, which is comprehensive medical care, 
some sort of post-employment benefits, whether it's a, a pension, which, you know, would be a long shot because in today's industry, those defined benefits just don't really exist anymore. So, but even a 401k program, uh, some sort of fighter minimums, uh, drug testing protocol, everything uh, wrapped around that would be in any normal collective bargaining agreement. And, and I'm, I truly believe in collective bargaining. You know, I'm not, not just a labor lawyer. I actually believe really the strong unionist and I really believe in it. And, uh, and so from, from an ideological standpoint, uh, you know, I, I'm really excited to help these fighters achieve, achieve, uh, what other major sports and other, you know, major industries have across the country. Lucas, Sam Kaplan here. You, you've done amazing work for Nick Diaz in the past, potentially even saved his career. Has Nick or his brother Nate, have they pledged their support for the PFA? And if so, how far has that support gone? Has it gone all the way to the extent that they are, that they've either signed a union card or ready to sign a union card? Yeah, well, so let me, let me address that kind of in two steps is, is one, because under the National Labor Relations Act, authorization cards are confidential, unless an individual or a fighter in this instance you know, ha- decides to come out publicly and say, I signed a card, I'm for the PFA, uh, I, I, I'm not at liberty to, to disclose who has and who hasn't. Uh, I know that, uh, that, that Nick's agent has discussed the entire issue with him. Uh, and, uh, and, and I believe it was a, it was a good conversation that he, that he had with Nick, but, uh, until Nick or Nate, uh, decide they want to come out and, and speak for it publicly, it's not, it's not my place to do so. I remember when you had the introductory press conference, you talked about once the first union card is signed, that basically the, the clock starts for one year. Has that clock already started? It has. In, in terms of, you know, I remember one at that press conference, the thing that really stuck out to me, and I think it may have been Jeff that, that said it when there was a talk about the differences between the MAFA and PFA. The thing that stuck to me was they've had seven years. We now have our opportunity. And then there's people in the industry says, well, why can't these two sides work together? What would you say to those people of why basically um, the, two, the two organizations could not work together? Well, you know, I would take a different approach. I actually think that the two organizations could very well work together. I, I, I don't think that, that, that we're at odds with each other, to be honest with you. The, the one area where it could be divergent would be the antitrust lawsuit. And the reason for that is because if, if and when the parties do enter into a collective bargaining agreement, then there's the non-statutory exemption to the, to the Sherman Antitrust Act. Now, what I haven't done is researched whether or not, from a damages perspective, that would apply retroactively up to everything that occurred up to entry into the CBA. I haven't done that legal research. I don't have an answer on that. Obviously, from that point forward, they would be exemption would apply. So in, in that, with that respect, there are divergent interests. But with respect to pushing or lobbying for the Alley Act to apply to MMA, Certainly, there's no divergent interest there. Uh, the PFA would would support any further protections, whether it comes from federal law or collective bargaining agreement. And in fact, unions have very strong lobbying efforts, especially some of the larger unions uh, across the United States. Uh, you know, are are quite active in lobbying in Washington D.C. So I, I really don't think that the interests are as divergent as as people have made them out to be. And I do think that at the core. 
both organizations have the fighter's interest in mind. And it's and it maybe is just as simple as getting together and, and ironing those out and, and deciding the best path to achieve that goal, which is to protect the fighters on a go forward basis in a in a manner that, that they just don't have now. And so I, for one, think that that's a distinct possibility. And, and, and I would never pit one labor group against another because I think it takes away from the ultimate goal, which is to le- uh, level the playing field with the employer. And, and Lucas, during the introductory press conference in Vegas, Jeff talked about a phone call he made to Ari Emanuel and indicated that the call didn't go well. After that was revealed, there was some, some certain writers out there, members of the media, that stated that, that Jeff may have not necessarily violated a law, but ethically may have made a huge error in reaching out to, to, Ari, to Ari before the actual union had been formed. Is there any legal uh, you know, issue with, with Jeff having made that call so soon? You know, the only thing that really uh, occurs to me that that people could be hinting at in their uh, in their criticism of that would be there is a concept out there of of an employer backed union. And it really was more prevalent back in the 40s and 50s, uh, where you would have employers essentially back an organization that became uh, a shadow union that was really controlled by the employer. And so if PFA were to go to a representation proceeding and let's say there was an intervener organization or association and they wanted to, to make a claim that we're not a bona fide labor organization uh, and say, well, they're an employer-backed union, and maybe they want to point to a single call from, from Jeff to these individuals at the outset, which would certainly not rise to that level. So that's, that's really the, the only path uh, of criticism uh, that I could see. I and mean, it's it, once you do have the authorization cards, it's actually pretty common. And I'm not saying we did at that point, obviously, but uh, once you do, the first step you do take before you file it with the NLRB is you reach out to the employer and you say, we have X amount of authorization cards. W- would you like to voluntarily recognize us as a certified bargaining uh, representative uh, and, and save the parties the, the time and expense of going through a formal NLRB proceedings. So that's that's obviously the first step that that I would counsel we take uh, if and when we've got the uh, a sufficient number of authorization cards. When you made the official announcement of this, one of the things that that really jumped out to me was uh, the MAFA and you know really coming after you guys in what were you doing? Were you surprised by that reaction? Um, surprised. I don't know if I necessarily was surprised. Uh, because they they have been uh, a fighters association that have been around for, for quite some time, and so maybe it's uh, it's a natural reaction when when a new entity you know, bursts onto the scene, so to speak. It's a decent amount of media attention to try to protect what you've worked for so many years uh, to achieve. I think that's probably a natural reaction. I, I don't fault them for for that reaction. Uh, so was I surprised? No. Uh, do, do I think that it means that, that the side, the two organizations can't work together? I don't think that's the case either. I think it's, it's, uh, was just a, a, a knee jerk reaction to, 
uh, you know, wanting to hold your place uh, within the industry that, that they've built, that they've worked hard to build over all these years. Lucas, it's going to take a lot of work to organize the fighters, to move them forward and form a union. And even if that happens, I would think that it's going to be even more work even once the union's formed because the UFC is going to have every intent to try to break that union, to do whatever they can, maybe by just targeting top draws and going after them. So, you know, without, you know, strike insurance or, you know, a long accumulation of dues to build up a strike fund, would a fighters league be a potential option to give fighters an opportunity to earn income while there's a strike? I'm not even sure if there's a legal uh, way to make that happen. I just know that, you know, there's been speculation if the NFL goes on strike, uh, you know, when the next CBA is up, there was some talk that maybe the the, uh, athletes would form a players league. Is something like that potentially on the table if the UFC were to try to break a strike? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and Major League Baseball players looked into that. Uh, I believe it was back either on, at, or before the 94 strike, um, as a, as a workaround. I would think that me personally, that that would be, uh, an option of last resort only because that really would take, uh, a lot of organization and, and startup capital to get that, to get that up and running. You know, there, everyone points to, they say, well, if you're union, your only leverage is, is a strike. And, and I don't necessarily agree with that. That's your last leverage. And well, let me step back. I would, I would, uh, prefer that, that, uh, the employer lock the individuals out as opposed to the individuals going on strike. And the reason is that if, if you're locked out, they cannot permanently replace you legally under the National Labor Relations Act. So that's a very important distinction. But but stepping back from that, there are a number of, of levers you can pull throughout the collective bargaining process to to create some leverage, so to speak. So uh, under the National Labor Relations Act, bargaining is it really is a legal process. It's not it's not akin to you know, bargaining down the first sale of your house or buying a car or even bargaining that you would see that an agent might do to get his, his or her fighter the best deal. It, it very much is a legal process. So, so one of the things you want to do throughout the process is you want to request every bit of information you can think of that may lend itself to the collective bargaining process because the employer is under an obligation under Section 885 of the National Labor Relations Act to provide every piece of relevant information. And the relevancy under the NLRA is, is very broad. And if they don't provide that information, you can then file bad faith bargaining charges with the National Labor Relations Board. And then the NLRB will act as a prosecutor and they will prosecute those charges. And so uh, if you have these charges hanging over the employer's head, uh, then you're, you're starting to create some additional leverage uh, in terms of pushing the two sides towards a deal. Now, does that mean that you're going to avoid some sort of work stoppage? Not necessarily, uh, but uh, you know, certainly a lot of contracts uh, have been entered into w- without a work stoppage. And, and if there has been a work stoppage, uh, you know, it could be as short as a week or two weeks uh, and, until the parties are are positioned to to reach agreement. And obviously a, a strike would be a last resort and a potential fighters league, fighters league would be a last resort. My next question is a follow-up and it's more of a legal question because, uh, you know, I w- I'm interested in the mechanics of it. 
and it not only pertains to MMA, but even other sports that talk, discuss the possibility of a, a player's league and in the case of MMA, a fighter's league, do their existing contracts with their teams and in this case with MMA, with their, their promotions, which are exclusive in nature, how, how, are, how are they able then to go out and compete on a professional level outside of their existing contract? Yeah, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful question. And, and their existing contracts would, if they're still in place and there's no collective, so if there's no collective bargaining agreement in place and their existing contracts are continuing based on their, their expiration date as stated in the contract, then you could have an issue in terms of exclusivity and the UFC may press that if, if as a choice of last resort, you're trying to create some sort of fighters league. Now, once, if and when you get a collective bargaining agreement, the CBA terms are going to control, except in the event that you have individual contracts that allow you to go above the minimums, so to speak. Uh, so that, you know, there's, you're right about that. If there's existing contracts in place and they haven't expired, then, uh, then, then you could push that in terms of foreclosing people from fighting in a different league. Once again, we're joined by Lucas Millbrook of the PFA here on the MA Insiders Podcast. Lucas, we reached out to our, our listeners, and we wanted to know what you know they wanted to know from you. Um, and, and one of our listeners, uh, Kenny, put out gave us a, a link to a a form on SureDog that was titled "Why the Fighters Union Won't Have uh, Success with the UFC." And, and he said this: "This is what the the uh, forum post was." Quote, people don't realize why the NFL, NBA, and NHL have a union. Those unions were created by the NHL, NFL, and NBA themselves. Why? Because they wanted to have a salary cap. And by law, competing businesses cannot agree together on capping salaries. That's called collusion, and collusion is against the law. And the only way to make the, this that work is for there to be a union that agrees to a CBA for a salary cap. In other words, the players have to get together with the owners and agree on a collective salary cap. Owners can't just create one on their own. In this case, the UFC doesn't need a cap, so they don't need to negotiate with a union. The UFC has the overwhelming power in this case, and they don't have to agree to anything the PFA asks for. What are the fighters going to do? Sit out? That's okay, because the UFC doesn't own a stadium that they have to maintain. Whenever there is a lockout, the rich teams don't have a problem with it as much as the low-revenue teams because they can't afford the maintenance costs of no incoming revenue. But the UFC doesn't have that much maintenance to keep up while they aren't any events going on, so they can afford to be in a tiny net loss if fighters sit out. Only the fighters will be losing money by not getting paid to fight, and the UFC won't lock them out the way the NHL, NBA, and NFL did because they don't need to force a union to sign any CBA. PFA isn't going to have much luck against the UFC. The UFC is a single entity. It isn't a collection of teams. How would you respond to uh, the person that posted that? <laughs> uh, that's... Yeah, so there's there's a lot in there. That's a that's a loaded uh, a loaded uh, post, so to speak. But what I would say is that they're right that the UFC doesn't have to agree to anything. Uh, and and in fact, what you'll see a lot of times when there is an organizing drive in in any venue for a union, the employer will routinely put out propaganda. And and one of the pieces is is uh, you know they can't make us agree to anything. But what they are obligated to do once the union is certified, is they are obligated to bargain in good faith. 
And there are a lot of parameters around what that means. So you're not allowed to come to the table and just sit there and, so to speak, pretend to bargain. That's called surface bargaining. That's illegal. You can file a bad faith bargaining charge over that. You're not allowed to say, I'm too busy to meet with you over the next three weeks to discuss terms and conditions. That's the busy negotiator defense. That's illegal. So while they're correct that they're not, uh, they don't have to agree to anything, they do have to bargain in good faith. And, and that's a, a standard that's been built pretty high by the NLRB, especially given that we've had eight years of a Democrat in the White House. Uh, the NLRB has made a number of decisions over the past eight years that have really gone in favor of, of unionized employees. Uh, in terms of, well, I guess it would be the, the, uh, the cost that the UFC operates at. I mean, the only response I would have to that is if, if a fighters association was successful in, in achieving a level of solidarity where, let's say hypothetically, the fighters were ready to go out and strike for what they thought was the best for their profession moving forward. The UFC, especially after this recent sale with this equity group, they are a for-profit business. They are in this to make profits and very large profits. And if you were successful uh, in, in achieving that solidarity and you didn't have uh, the Ronda Rousey's or the Holly Holmes or the, the Diaz's or the McGregor's, fighting, they're not going to be generating the profits or the revenue that they've been historically used to. And while they may be able to continue to operate as an entity without going into financial distress, they're owned by an equity group now. And they want to see returns. And those returns wouldn't be there if you didn't have the big name fighters uh, performing on the biggest stage. One of the reasons that we've heard as to why we haven't seen fighters organize why we haven't seen any traction from any of the, the potential trade associations or unions, unions out there is that fighters are afraid of reprisals from the UFC. They're afraid to come forward because they're afraid of the UFC retaliating. Can you take us through some of the you know, legal protections, if there's any protections out there, uh, you know, a, fighters would ha- a fighter would have if they came forward, if, they, if their name came out publicly, you know, it, would it be legal for the UFC to take action against them? No, it's illegal. It's illegal under Section 8A3, that's 8A3 of the National Labor Relations Act, which, which makes it illegal for uh, an employer to discriminate against an individual uh, based on them exercising their right to bargain collectively or to assist or join in the union. And just similar to I mentioned the bad faith bargaining charges, you, you can file 8A3 charges. So, for instance, if, if there was a very vocal proponent of, of the union and all of a sudden their, their contract uh, was uh, canceled or, or they uh, now all of a sudden aren't getting fights, uh, you could file what's called an 8A3 charge with the National Labor Relations Act. And again, they will, they will investigate, and then if, if they determine there's a four-cause showing, they will then prosecute that charge. And they have quite a bit of remedial authority. So the NLRB, uh, they actually have a decent amount of, t- of teeth in terms of what they can uh, – force employers who violate the law to do so that, you know, in, in, in your normal circumstance where you've got someone, uh, let's say on the shop floor and they get fired uh, and they file an 8A3, they can put them back to work. They can award them back pay damages, make whole relief. Uh, and so you, they do have that protection under federal law. And, you know, it's, 
it's not unique to to the UFC and the fighters fearing recrimination from an employer in a union organizing drive. That's, that's extremely common in any entity where you have not had a union and now all of a sudden one is, is trying to come in and, and cement a collective bargaining process. In fact, it's quite common, and that's the reason that we have Section 83 of the National Labor Relations Act, because it is something that occurs. And so if, if I were to speaking to fighters, I, I'm telling them that you've got this protection, but a lot of times just knowing that that protection's out there still is not going to prompt people to come out and publicly support it because you still have to go through that legal process to get relief, and a lot of times people don't don't want to do that, but that's an, an, another reason why the the collection, the authorization card process is confidential under federal law as well. As a follow-up, I once worked for a company, and when I started with that company, they played us an orientation video, and a large majority of that orientation video was spent was spent uh, uh, towards telling us not to join a union, why we shouldn't join a union. If the UFC started to try to reach out to fighters and started trying to encourage them not to join a union, similar to the, the, the job that I had, is, is that legal? It, it is legal up to a point. So you, you I mean, I, refer, I often refer to it as propaganda because you do see it quite a bit and you see the same thing over and over again. You probably saw it in your video where uh, you're going to be you're going to have to pay dues. A certain yeah, amount of your salary exa- is now, yeah, now going to. Yeah. It is now going to go to pay dues. You won't have a direct relationship with your employer anymore. Uh, you know, so that, so, they, that was yeah, that was in there too. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty it's pretty common. You see the same game plan over and over again, and, and it's very interesting actually. There are companies who who have made a business out of, of formulating anti union campaigns. So. Company employers will hire outside companies or consultants to come in and run their anti-union campaigns. So it's very, it's very common. They, there's a line they can't cross, they can't threaten, uh, they can't coerce. But yeah, absolutely, they can put out a, a quote-unquote educational campaign or a propaganda campaign, and then it's incumbent upon the union to educate on the other side of things. So uh, when we when I was involved in organizing the major league soccer officials and it's a much smaller group and it's not the same money. And I understand that, but the similarity is that they were non-union and they wanted to form a union from the ground up. And uh, the employer, which is the officiating arm of major league soccer, they, they ran a pretty, pretty aggressive anti-union campaign with all of those things that, that you probably saw in your video. And, and that I just mentioned and what, what the PSRA, that's the union, what they had to do was go out and educate. And so they had to go out and have meetings with the referees. They, they brought in NBA officials who had been unionized for 30 years to explain how it's benefited their careers. So that's, that's common in any organizing drive, and you just have to be prepared to run your own educational campaign. When the PFA was announced, it was all about, hey, this is about UFC fighters and, and protecting their interests. Has there been any talk about, you know, maybe helping out Bellator fighters? Yeah, there's been a discussion uh, because it was brought up at the press conference, uh, you know, why it was limited to the UFC. And, you know, my response is that it was is only limited to the UFC in terms of, of initial drive. And the reason is uh, I foresee that if we are successful in collecting enough authorization cards to get in front of the National Labor Relations Board, that the UFC is going to make this independent contractor versus employee argument. And 
I felt given the control that the UFC has over its fighters in terms of telling them when to fight, telling them what they can wear, uh, you know, telling them where they can be in terms of drug testing now, that, that the best chance of winning that independent contractor versus employee argument was with the UFC. And then if you are victorious there and you set that valuable precedent, and then and then you get interest from another group, let's say like Bellator, the fighters say, well, we, we'd like to have our we'd like to have you represent us. And you say, well, let's start collecting cards and, and we'll go that same route. The only difference is with a, you would have to have separate collective bargaining agreements for each employer. And I have one final question here, Lucas. The, you know, we did get a listener question and I've heard this, you know, kind of this, this opinion line of questioning espoused by other people as well, especially on Twitter. They're saying what, you know, a drawback, for the PFA's vision of organizing organizing fighters in comparison to the M uh, to MAFAs or MMM whatever acronym they're using, um, one of the one of the biggest drawbacks is is if the PFA moves forward and they're successful, and they form a union and there's collective bargaining, it it eliminates the ability for athletes to come after the UFC for mon- monopolistic practices. I mean, what what's your response to that line of questioning? Uh, it, they're right. It does. There's there's what's called a non-statutory exemption to the Sherman Antitrust Act uh, for purposes uh, if you're in a collective bargaining relationship, and that's decades, decades old. And you'll remember the NFL Players Association playbook. Uh, the last time their contract was up, they actually decertified their union and then sued under the Sherman Antitrust Act in Minnesota federal court. And then once the once the situation went resolved, they recertified their union. So uh, the people that that mentioned that they are correct. Uh, that's gonna that's gonna cease to be an option to sue for Sherman antitrust violations. Now, with that in mind, those are not easy litigations to prevail upon. And and not only are they not easy litigation to prevail upon. The, they are long and expensive litigation uh, that, that you have to engage in. Uh, and the UFC, as we know, they have deep pockets. So you're, when you're litigating against an entity that has much deeper pockets, uh, they, can, they can litigate you to death, so to speak. But, but put, that asi- put that aside of the Sherman antitrust, and the collective bargaining process gives you, gives you the ability to, to agree on a revenue split between the, the, the employer and, and the, the uh, fighters in this instance. And obviously the, the goal would be the other major sports entities, which are all around 50-50 in terms of their revenue split. Uh, and, and not only that, aside from the Sherman antitrust and monopolistic, you're really limited in, in your remedies that you're going to achieve from that in, in a litigation uh, in a federal court litigation, I mean, my focus is that in a collective bargaining agreement, you can wrap up all sorts of protections that are going to live on, uh, you know, for a very long time and establish a collective bargaining relationship between the parties that in the end helps both the employer uh, and, and the fighters because it's going to generate some sort of labor stability over time. Not at the beginning, it won't because it's going to be contentious, but over time, those relationships, uh, you know, they do change and, and become uh, you know, advantageous to both sides. As and final thing for me and Lucas, I, I really do appreciate time. You know, a lot of people in the industry are wondering about, you know, will the PFA get involved in the regional scene? And 
Could it be something where the PFA would try to get a minimum pay for fires on the quote unquote regional scene? Is that even something that's even in you know in discussion at all? No, I mean that that hasn't been that hasn't been brought up uh, as a discussion point at, at, at this at this point. I mean we're really focused right now. The focus is on the UFC getting these authorization cards, and then listen down the road uh, you know, the vision of the PFA. And, and I'll try not to sidetrack too much here, but that's one of the reasons why, and I mentioned it at the press conference, is that it's important for me that, that this is an independent union, which means that it's not affiliated with a large, larger trade association like the AFL-CIO or the Teamsters. And the reason for that is because when you affiliate with, with those larger industrial unions, a portion of your dues are going to get kicked up to the international or the national union. And, and while you may have autonomy down at your level in terms of making decisions, you are kicking some of your revenue up. So it's important, just like the, the other sports players associations, that you remain independent. And then, and then you elect an executive board that's compro- comprised just of fighters. And they make the decisions. Now, they get voted in, and then they make the decisions. And if, and if one of their decisions is they want to try to go out as an association once they've uh, built a treasury, so to speak, and, and assist uh, in the regional area, then that's then that's a decision that they can make uh, as a union. Uh, you know, the lawyers and the and the, um, the and the consultants and the economists, they're just there to assist. Uh, and that's always my view of unionism: is that you don't you don't want the, these unions controlled by lawyers uh, or or consultants. You need them controlled by the people who are affected by the agreements that you're negotiating. And, of course, uh, if you want to follow the PFA, it's at Fighters A-S-S-O-C on, on Twitter. Anywhere, anything else you want to touch on before we get out of here, Lucas? I, I think, I, uh, I think I've uh, out of things to uh, talk about right now. Lucas, I, I really do appreciate time, and uh, I really look forward to seeing what happens uh, with the PFA. Wonderful, and thank you, uh, thank you for having me on. Thanks, Lucas. Sam, a lot of interesting stuff there from Lucas Millbrook of the PFA. And to me, the thing that stuck out to me the most is the clock has already started. That means someone has signed a union card. I believe you've heard it here first. Uh, does that mean that when uh, this this news gets reported that we're going to get mentioned on a lot of websites? Uh, yeah, I think that, uh, <laughs> you know, as far as I know, that that has not been out there. That's a little bit of a, of a uh, breaking news item here on the MMA Insiders podcast. It was, you know, you know, we had Rob Macy on last week, and, you know, and, and we want to give the other side of the story. And uh, a lot of great stuff there. I, I was uh, I was kind of uh, a little disappointing you, Sam. You, know, you love to say I'm not a lawyer. We had a lawyer on the line. Well, I asked him questions that someone that wasn't a lawyer would ask. You got to, got to, you know, give me credit there. I definitely got to give you credit. I mean, um, but I mean, clearly, the fact that saying that the clock has already started uh, on that process to me was that to me is my biggest takeaway. And he said a lot of great things, a, a ton of great things in there. But to me, that that is the the one thing that stuck out. That was the big takeaway for me. The uh, the other big takeaway, you know, is just overall how well spoken Lucas Middlebrook is. The way he's able to articulate his points. Definitely a guy that if you're an athlete, a professional athlete, and you're looking for an advocate, you know, he's absolutely someone that I would want speaking on my behalf. And that's that's really what it all comes down to. I, I really feel like the PFA, out of all the different incarnations we've seen 
of trade associations and potential unions that this is the best hope for fighters. Just based on Jeff Boris's background, his credentials, his pedigree, and Lucas Middlebrook, his pedigree and his background, and just hearing the way Lucas Middlebrook spoke, that he's definitely going to be a formidable influence in driving this. I think he's going to have a major impact. I think Jeff Boris is going to have a major impact. And I just, you know, I I think I said it either on the last episode or the episode before, I really feel that the time and the mood is right for a union to finally take hold in the UFC. You know, and obviously we kind of mentioned there in in the interview talking about, you know, because a lot of people bring up uh, Bellator and uh, you have to imagine, obviously, you know, it, it starts with the UFC, but, uh, you know, I think if, if you're, you're Viacom and, and you're anyone uh, inside upper management of Bellator, you, you have to be paying attention to what's going on with the PFA. And you're, and if they're listening to this, this show and they're hearing, I guess that's another revelation, that the PFA would consider, they wouldn't rule out organizing Bellator fighters. If you're, if you're Viacom, Spike TV, and Bellator, how do you, re, how do you respond to that? Uh, you know, are you worried about that? Or do you maybe potentially welcome that? Because if you welcome that, if you support that, if you foster that, you're separating yourself from the UFC. And now you truly can promote yourself as a fighter's forward organization. If Bellator had a union, if there was collective bargaining, might that be more appealing for a fighter? But the thing is, is, I mean, they don't have a, a TV rights deal. I mean, that, that's a huge difference between Bellator and the UFC because they're owned by a television property. They, well, on paper, they do have a rights fee deal. I, I think it's something that's probably skewed lower than normal, probably to uh, help them with tax implications because you have to disclose in certain states what your television rights revenue is per episode and you're taxed on that. So I'm sure it's... It's uh, structured in a certain way, but there, there definitely is technically a, you know, I, I would be shocked if there wasn't. There has to be some kind of deal on paper that exists because when you go to these states, you, ha- you have to represent, especially if you're televised. If you're televised and the state taxes on televised deal, you can't say, well, we're owned by – the station we're broadcast by, there has to be something in place. There has to be documented money exchanging hands for the services that you're providing. You know, but, you know, that that being said, I I would still think, you know, Bellator could separate itself from the UFC if they welcomed a union and if there was collective bargaining. If If there's not collective bargaining in the UFC and there is in Bellator and you're unhappy with the way you're represented in the UFC and the way you're treated, then you would see Bellator as an attractive alternative if that existed there. And Scott Coker has publicly stated in interviews he is uh, he's for you know uh, fighters uh, coming together and, and putting a union together or an association. He's he's been public about that, which is is going to be it's 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 so interesting to see if all of this uh, you know can come together. So really do appreciate Lucas coming on the, on the podcast here as uh, you know look we're we're not a podcast that uh, you know typically we do not do interviews. But, uh, you know, the last two weeks have been very interesting. Uh, I've, I've learned a lot. We, we learned uh, a lot about Rob Macy uh, on the last edition of the podcast and now uh, learning a, a lot about what Lucas Middlebrook and, and, and Jeff Boris are trying to do uh, with the PFA. Uh, you know, we, we talked about UFC 203 uh, at the beginning of, of the show, and, you know, one of 
it, the biggest, uh, I guess, news items outside of, of kind of that whole weekend was a very interesting tweet went off after UFC 203 was over, and, and I saw some people say, hey, if we have to have CM Punk to fight uh, you know, in the UFC and that means Kyle Snyder's coming to MMA, they're going to take it, and, boy, it pretty much does look like uh, Kyle is coming to MMA. Well, Kyle Snyder would be the exact opposite of what CM Punk. By the way, Jason, sorry to interrupt or to get off track. We did not discuss. Have we discussed Ohio's comments when when Bernie Profato was pressed about why CM Punk, why they violated their, their well, not necessarily violated, but there is a rule in the books that says you have to have five amateur fights in the state of Ohio, and basically have gone three and two in those fights in order to be granted a pro license, unless you got a special exemption. And when pressed about that. Uh, you know, I thought that was a comical. You know, maybe oh, that's not what Bernie oh, meant, but man, so bad choice bad. of words. Bad choice, choice of yeah, words. Yeah, exactly. Bad choice of words. Because here's the one thing, and I understand why it became like this hot take last week. But let's, be, you know, saying let's be honest about it. Every state would have regulated that fight. And you know, he he should have just chosen his words better and just said, hey, "Look, this is there's a special exemption. We're exercising that. This is a big event." We trust Joe Silva, which he did say. We yeah. trust Joe Silva in the UFC's matchmaking. We feel that this matchup's on the level, and we're 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 going to sanction it based on on that. I, you know, and that you know he sh- sure would have gotten some, still gotten some negative feedback based on that, but nowhere near as much trying to compare CM Punk's background to Brock Lesnar's. Eh? Yeah, just, that was. Uh, you, know it, what, you know, also kind of and look, and I'm not. I mean, I I watched professional wrestling, you know, growing up, and you know, maybe I watch every once in a while. I'm, I'm not a pro wrestling fan but i don't understand why people are like well you know cm punk's not an athlete i'm like seriously i think you really should go into a pro wrestling gym and see these guys train growing and tell me these guys aren't athletes he's an athlete pro wrestlers are definitely athletes and some of them are very athletic and when i i, I use that term i mean just by their measurables you look at brock lesnar a pro wrestler but he, he's he's for a guy that size he's big Yes, he's big, but he's even stronger than his size would indicate. And, and there's certain guys, especially some of these luchadors and these high flyers, that do what they do. They're like gymnasts. It, it, takes, it takes incredible athleticism. The thing with CM Punk is he's not an athletic athlete. And what I mean, that may sound like an oxymoron, but what I mean by that is he doesn't have a, an ath- a skill athletically that he's a standout in he's not super fast he's not super strong he's not super quick he's not super agile he's just a guy as far as being a pro wrestler that would outwork his opponents and was a master performer he could tell a story outside of the ring he could tell a story inside of the ring but he's not someone that was an all-state football player in high school he's not someone that ran a four 440 because he was so blazing fast. He does not have that level of athleticism. And we, as we saw in the cage, he didn't have the technique and he didn't have the experience and he couldn't fall back on raw athleticism because it just wasn't there. He was just so overmatched and outgunned. So, you know, you talked about Kyle Snyder coming in to MMA. That would be the antithesis of CM Punk's entry into MMA because Kyle Snyder has a true combat sports background and has measurables 
as an athlete that he could bring to the table that even without all the technique and experience in the world, his athleticism alone will, would help him get by and, uh, you know, mitigate some of those shortcomings. CM Punk didn't have that. And I've got to believe that if Kyle Snyder comes, and, and based on some of the stuff that I'm reading, it's, it's a foregone conclusion. I mean, I think in a, in a recent interview that he, he's done, he says he wants to fight UFC and that he, is, 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 he intends to fight both uh, MMA as a professional while still pursuing uh you know amateur wrestling excellence if he does make that crossover i think he could be one of the biggest stars in mma history you got to think with all of the amateur wrestlers that bellator has signed over the last 12 to 18 months you got to think they would open up the pocketbook for him you've got to think but the fact that he's already saying he wants the ufc already puts bellator behind the eight ball and the only way Bellator could get an advantage over the UFC is if they offered a significant amount more money. And based on the type of athlete that Kyle Snyder is, based on his NCAA heavyweight title, his gold medal, the fact that he has the look and he's a heavyweight, I- I've got to think that the UFC will, will spare no expense into bringing him into their organization. He could be a massive draw for them. By the way, we mentioned CM Punk. Uh, let's, let's do a little predictions. What's next for CM Punk? What, I, I'm saying right now his next fight's in Bellator. That's what I was going to say. You stole the thunder. And I think that we're already seeing a potential prelude to that because Dana White and CM Punk, they both had talked about their friendship and their strong relationship coming into the fight. And I think that that friendship, because really you, you can never truly be friends with a promoter. You're, you're, you know, CM Punk referred to Dana as a friend and the Fertitas as a friend. They're business friends. Yeah. And when Dana came out after the show and said what he said, which was basically that if CM Punk fights again, he thinks it's not going to be in the UFC cage, saying whether or not that's true, taking it to the next level and actually putting that out there, you've got to think if you're CM Punk, you might feel some kind of way if you consider Dana White a friend. You know, at some point, CM Punk, at one point, CM Punk thought he had a good relationship with Vince McMahon. And then last week, he comes out and says, yeah, Vince McMahon is bankrolling a lawsuit against me. So promoters, when they're friends with top draws, when they're, when there's that myth, that, that, that imagine, imaginary friendship that exists, that friendship gets put to the test as soon as that athlete loses and you try to take his pay down or you don't promote him the same kind of way. Case in point, Bjorn Rebney and Mo Lawal, they were actually, you know, they, 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 they were getting along pretty well there. And then Mo lost to, to Emmanuel Newton, and everything went south after that. I could see potentially the same thing happening if CM Punk insists on fighting again in the UFC and insists on being paid the same amount of money, if not more. That's going to put their friendship to the test. Jason, I don't think, uh, you know, if CM Punk is serious about continuing his MMA career, I agree with you. His next fight will be in Bellator. But if you're the UFC, you definitely want to try to prevent that from happening. But it's going to be tough for them to do that without actually allowing CM Punk to compete in the cage again, in the octagon, and potentially embarrassing them again. Because it definitely was not... The way he was dominated and was defeated so quick, I don't think it was good for the brand, and I don't think it was good for CM Punk. It was kind of eerie for me to watch that, Jason, on Saturday night because this is a guy who's complained about having concussion issues in the past, complained about having injury issues. And when Mickey Gall was on top of him and raining down punches, when CM Punk was flat on his back, CM, uh, Mickey Gall was wailing them. They were pretty fast and they were heavy. I got, I got a little sick. I got a little queasy because I'm, I'm a CM Punk fan. And knowing that he's had issues with concussions in the past, that's that's not what I wanted to see. And hopefully his wife steps in 
and maybe talks him out of fighting again. But, you know, it seems like Dana White doesn't want to see it again. But if CM Punk wants to do it and presses the issue, he's going to do it. But if you're the UFC, you definitely don't want him going to Bellator. And if I'm Dana White, I'm trying to figure out a plan B. How can we keep CM Punk in the UFC family without making him a part of our fight roster? And I really think one role that he would be great at that I would like to see is that of a color commentator. I think he's well-spoken. I, I think he's great on camera. And I think he's had a year-and-a-half education training with one of the best camps in the world against world-class fighters on a day-in, day-out basis. He's got a little bit of, uh, of education there. I definitely think he, he could do a solid job as a color commentator. And the UFC, with Rogan, when they first brought Joe Rogan in, I mean, he was – pretty well known. I mean, he had a really good gig on news radio. That was a big show in, in its day. And Rogan was a celebrity. Now with the newer generation uh, of MMA fans, they, they, they know Joe Rogan first and foremost as a UFC color commentator. But me as a little bit of an older guy, I knew Joe Rogan as a comedic actor and comedian. And that was a, a celebrity rub that the UFC got every time he did a show for them. And they would get a, a similar celebrity rub by making CM Punk maybe a part-time commentator. You know, they, they fired Nick the Tooth from, uh, was it looking for a fight? Yeah. Matt Sarah actually came out and gave the whole story, which I don't want to get sidetracked again. But, you know, no, no discredit to Dean Thomas, but throw CM Punk in there with Matt Sarah and Dana White. Do the show that way. Get CM Punk on your broadcasters uh, broadcast as a commentator and a studio analyst. And then if he's real serious about fighting, come up with some kind of deal that allows him to fight for promotions that are on fight pass. You know, cut deals and set it up. Maybe you're subsidizing the vast majority of his salary, driving more people for fight pass subscriptions, and having him fight on fight pass but not in the octagon. Keep him in the family don't let him go to Bellator because Bellator could do some interesting things. Now, the box office returns could be diminishing, but Stefan Bonner threw something out there. that He said that when he first heard that CM Punk was going to the UFC, he called Dana White and suggested that he fight Phil Baroni. A way for Bellator to kind of cash in on CM Punk and make it worth their while is not just having CM Punk in their cage competing because, again, the novelty's worn off. There's going to be diminishing returns. But if they can find the right opponent, like a Phil Baroni, that could bring a lot of people's interest level back up. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. By, by the way, speaking of uh, potential fighters going to Bellator, Shane Carwin had, you know, came out last week and, and announced he's a free agent, and, and obviously Bellator immediately comes to mind. Um, it would it would seem like a, a good uh, landing spot for Shane. Oh, 10 months from now, my prediction is we're going to see CM Punk headlining Bellator shows and Shane Carwin headlining Bellator shows. I, I think that if he's serious about coming back, there's really only one other option if the UFC door is closed, and that's Bellator. I don't see World Series of Fighting making a serious run at him. Of course, there's one FC. They could make a balloon offer, but if you're Shane Carwin and Bellator has any kind of remote interest, I, I've got to think that, that Bellator is there. And they could do some interesting fights. They could do Lashley versus Shane Carwin. They could try to get Minikoff back in and do Shane Carwin versus Minikoff for the heavyweight title. There's definitely some possibilities there. Bellator could draw some big ratings with Shane Carwin headlining their shows. Yeah, it's uh, you know, and you know, maybe uh, you know, King Mo. Of course, he's always about the open. You know, he's all about the money fight. Money weight, and, money weight, King Mo. You know, and uh, you know, it, but you know, obviously, there's always been there's been the rumors of, 
you know, a heavyweight tournament. And, uh, you know, I think that Bellator could, if they get the right fighters in, they could, they could do something special with the heavyweight tournament. Jason, what about the possibility of GSP fighting for Bellator? Because Shane Carwin, from my understanding, was under contract to the UFC, decided he wanted to come back. His management reached out to the UFC, and I, from what I understand through my sources, it was a financial issue. They, they, you know, he wasn't going to come back and fight for what he had fought for in the past. He wanted to fight, and he wanted to make more money, and there was an impasse. Instead of grounding and putting Shane Carwin on the shelf, the UFC simply released him. We're seeing a little bit of an impasse here with GSP and the UFC, and it's interesting because Dana White tries to shoot down GSP wanting to come back. GSP wants to come back. What's hold, preventing the comeback from happening isn't whether or not GSP is serious about it. It's, it's, it's a money issue. And it's very interesting because the UFC is now owned in part, large part, by William Morris Endeavor. Their biggest rival in the sports mm-hmm. representation game is the agency that represents George St. Pierre. That's CAA. Yeah, you can, know. Can, can WME and CAA work together and make this deal happen? And, and, and if they can't work together, does GSP, like Shane Carwin, get his get his release and go to Bellator, potentially? How, how are you the UFC and you go to Toronto, McDonald's already gone, GSP, the timing would be right. And, and, and to me, the most interesting thing was, you know, he's essentially on UFC programming uh, on, on FS1 and, and sitting there and saying, hey, uh, I want to fight, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to fight for the parameters of, of the deal that was a couple years ago. I mean, it's to me, that was kind of the most interesting part about that interview that GSP did on FS1. And maybe it's crazy to think the UFC would just let George St. Pierre walk. But five years ago, the UFC, if the UFC had decided to release Shane Carwin in, in the same manner that they just did, that, that never would have happened. I mean, it, it, Shane Carwin would have tried to come back. They wouldn't have agreed on the money. They would have shelved him, and then he would have had to file a lawsuit, and there would have been a fight to the bitter end. Now we're seeing guys, when these issues come up, they're getting released in certain cases early, whereas you just you, promotions would not do that under any circumstance. And knowing WME's tensions with CAA, do they just wash their hands and, and, and let him go? Something to note on, on Shane Carwin, he is 41 years old. So, and your point being there? <laughs> I mean, I know it's heavyweight, but obviously and heavyweight, it seems to be, you know, I guess 41 is kind of like a prime for heavyweight. Yeah, especially in the UFC. You know, I mean, forget about Bellator and having 50-year-olds fight. I mean, the, the, the UFC with their heavyweights, they're all uh, – Overeem's older – Arlovsky's older, Barnett's older. All these guys are older. I think the thing with Shane Carwin, you wonder about the injury history with him and can his body hold up. Um, you know, if you're talking yeah, about fighting two times a year, but, but why do you let him go? He, he's he's a potential commodity. He's a potential asset. He, he's a guy that can draw. Years ago, this would never have happened. They would never let a guy like Shane Carwin out of their grasp and let him just walk. If he sides with Bellator tomorrow, and they. Shane Carwin versus Bobby Lashley. That's a big fight. Maybe that, that's a big fight. Maybe there's just more to the story, Sam. Maybe that relationship wasn't as good as maybe people thought it was, and maybe there were issues in the past between the UFC and Shane Carwin, and they decided they just didn't want to be in that business. But in the past, that, would, that wouldn't have stopped a promotion from, from keeping a guy like that under contract. No, it definitely would not. Uh, 
GSP, I, I still say I think the deal gets done. I think he headlines uh, UFC 206 uh, on December 10th in Toronto. I don't think it's going to happen. We'll, we'll, see what, we'll see what happens. By the way, I should note, October 10th, uh, Sam, mark that on your calendar. Tentatively, that is the uh, October meeting for the Nevada State Athletic Commission. John Jones, Brock Lesnar, both slated to be on that agenda. Fight pass, main event, co-main event. <laughs> Yeah, that that and you know that. Who's that, the main event? Who's who's the main event on that docket? Uh oh, oh but also Connor and Nate on, are slated to be on that agenda as well. It's a hell of an undercard <laughs> for their uh, for you know their scuffle there. At the I, you probably weren't you weren't watching, but the uh, I don't know if you saw this on Friday. You know they have obviously the early weigh-ins, which Bernie ended up you know going completely totally opposite what he had said a couple months ago. He actually did the early weigh-ins. So Overeem doesn't show up on time, shows up uh, about five minutes late, finds him $500. Yeah, Alistair wasn't too happy. <laughs> <laughs> but you if know. that had happened in Vegas, wouldn't the fight I, have been let, off? Let me, yeah, let me ask you this, though, because obviously that, that fight card lost uh, a fight on on fight day on the oh, morning the of. Oh, yeah, the elevator incident. Did, did you ever, have you ever seen anything like that in the industry? Where, Not with an elevator. I saw Maurice Jackson yeah. over at the Kansas Star Casino was scheduled to fight that that very same night. Went down at the uh, the Hampton Inn connected to the Kansas Star Casino. Went down to get his free complimentary breakfast. They had just washed the floor. I was there like almost as it happened because I saw the signs and walked you know w- walked through the uh, their the little uh, food area instead of staying on the. Uh, the, the walkway there, and uh, next thing you know, I, I hear this big thud, and I turn around, and there's big ass Maurice Jackson flat on his back, and fights off. I remember uh, being informed of that. They're like, "By the way, this fight's not happening." Yeah, I remember that. And people, there was people that whispering saying Maurice faked that to try to get out of the fight. But if he was faking it, he went all out. I mean, I turned around, and the guy was flat on his back in pain. I mean, it it wasn't like he did it when no one was looking. I mean, he he if, if he was faking it, he went through the whole, uh, you know, the whole shebang. Yeah, I I remember that. You know, that was that was a crazy scene. Of course, Bellator and the UFC both have fight cards coming up this weekend. Sam, you got uh, the UFC in Hidalgo coming up on Saturday night. Uh, Friday night, Bellator is in uh, Cedar Park, Texas, uh, headlined by Chet Congo versus Tony Johnson. I will be. My favorite fighter, Jason, Tony Johnson, most, the most electrifying fighter in MMA, Tony Johnson. I will uh, be heading to Phoenix on Friday afternoon, so I will probably miss that fight card. So I'll, I'll, I'll set my DVR to watch those fights coming up on, on Friday night. But, yeah, uh, Buck, Bucks got a win on, on Sunday. I so did the Eagles. So did your Eagles, yeah. you, you got to be – of course, it was against Cleveland Browns. Uh, yeah, if you can't beat Cleveland, you can't beat anybody. That That, that is – Potentially I'll tell you, the worst, I, I worst organization in sports. I, I watched some bad football Monday night with uh, the 49ers and Rams. That wasn't exactly an exciting game. To that watch. was bad, but but the Rams are bad. I mean, the Browns are bad. How about passing on Carson Wentz? I think that's going to live in infamy. I think that will live in infamy in the history of the Cleveland Browns. Trading out of the two spot, letting the Eagles take Carson Wentz. How many quarterbacks has, have the Browns gone through oh, in the last five, six years? It's, it's, it's I, insane. I, I, Coaches, I remember- GMs, and quarterbacks. It's Crazy. I, I forget. I've seen the number since the Browns came back in '99. The amount of quarterbacks they've been through, and look, it's 
it, it, it's tough to find that franchise quarterback. I mean, let's let's be honest about it. It's, it's not going to be RG three, at least not this year. No, no, it's definitely not RG three. And uh, but yeah, it was uh, good to have uh, you know uh, the NFL back. As uh, I, I hop back on a plane later on this week to he- to head out to Phoenix, so uh, I've ne- I've never done a game out at uh, there in uh, Glendale, so I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to going out there and, and doing a game out there. So uh, looking forward to uh, that, and uh, finally get a home game uh, next weekend. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. Nice. It's always nice to sit there, and then uh, you know, Sam, we're going up against each other in the MA Insiders Fantasy Football League coming up this week. So. Uh, We'll see how, how well that goes. Uh, thank you, D'Angelo Williams, on Monday nights for leading me uh, to a victory uh, in the MA Insiders Fantasy Football League. But uh, that's all coming up uh, this weekend. Anything else you want to mention before we get out of here, Sam? Um, I, I got nothing. Well, that's going to wrap it up. Of course, you want to uh, be sure to listen to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. All you have to do is search the MBA Insiders Podcast. And while you're there, we really do appreciate it. If you would, rate and review this show. Also, you can listen to the show on TuneIn Radio, uh, SoundCloud, MBAinsidersPodcast.com, the MBAreport.com, RadioInfluence.com. Plenty of places to listen to the MMA Insiders podcast. Of course, you want to uh, follow myself on Twitter at Jason underscore Floyd. You want to follow Sam on Twitter at Sam Kaplan MMA. And, uh, of course, we'll be back next week to talk about the latest and greatest going on in the world of mixed martial arts. Follow Jason Floyd and Sam Kaplan on Twitter. Find them at Jason underscore Floyd and at Sam Kaplan MMA. This is the MMA Insiders Podcast on Radio Influence.